Good morning. We're looking at the text that's printed in your bulletin this morning. I'm not sure what to make of it when Kyle says his favorite part of the service uh, is not this part. Um, it's another part of the service. I sit there and wonder uh, myself uh, whether this is my favorite part of the service either. Um, we've been looking at this letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, um, and we are now approaching chapter 11. Paul's been looking um, and thinking about, um, and a better way to describe it, really broken uh, over his own people, over the Jewish people, over Israel. Um, personally, he's experienced uh, rejection and hostility from them, uh, but it's not just personal for Paul. There's also um, just this recognition, uh, a failure on the part of Israel to embrace uh, Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the one that had been promised to them uh, since time since they had known uh, this promises. And, and yet, uh, what Paul had experienced, what he had seen, is just widespread rejection. So he comes to chapter 11, where we find ourselves this morning, and the question is, um, is this permanent? Is this forever? We all know what it's like to be involved with a relationship where we finally uh, sort of pull the plug would be the best description. We finally said we've had enough, that's enough of this, I'm not doing this anymore. And sometimes there's very good reasons uh, that we do that. And the question that Paul is wrestling with is, does God do that? Uh, Does he pull the plug, so to speak? Look with me as I read from Romans 11, um, and I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning. So uh, the good news is... Kyle, once again this morning, said that means it will be a short sermon. So, there we go. So, let's look at Romans 11. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. What was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were grace, it would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear to this very day. David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask that they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery. Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? And talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if the rejection brought about reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is, is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you... Though a wild olive shoot had been grafted in among the others, 
and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For God did not spare the natural branches. He will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness, sternness of God, the sternness of those who fail, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. It is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his calling are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God and now receive mercy as a result of their disobedience, so too they now have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you be with us as we look and think about uh, your call on the world. Are there those that you have sort of given up on? We pray now that you'd be with us as we look into this very important chapter from your Apostle Paul, to us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. A Jewish magazine monument asked a recent number of Jewish writers, professors, rabbis, artists, actors, uh, the following question, what does the concept of the Messiah mean to you today? Here are some of the responses. A novelist wrote this, he may be around the corner, but that's where he always should be. In the Jewish tradition, sitting idly waiting on the Messiah is a sin. A rabbi said this years ago, a popular evangelical bumper sticker read, I found it. The Jewish version of that bumper sticker would be this, I'm still looking for it. A literature professor said, who at different times in their lives hasn't had a belief that someone, a Messiah, can help them and help the world. And the Messiah is the biggest answer to the biggest single question, does God care about me? A playwright said this, most people think the Messiah has already come, but Jews are waiting. It could be anybody. It's a very sexy idea, she wrote. There's a blind date with the sacred that awaits you at any moment. And finally, a sociologist professor said this, for most Jews, the messianic idea has receded. It's not on the top of the agenda anymore. They don't see history as moving to that day at all. In that kind of environment, this chapter sort of speaks and resonates. Um, while it may look as if there's sort of 
a departure, a giving up. The question is, does God actually give up on his people? And just, we need to see the preservation that Paul talks about in these, in this passage. His answer is, God rejected Israel. Has he sort of abandoned his ancient people? The answer is no. And Paul begins his discussion with the idea, a really old idea, the idea of the remnant. This idea resonates throughout the Old Testament. It's the idea that there were always a few people that remained even after a great disaster, like the roots of a tree, as one writer said. It's seen in the prophets that they predicted that even in spite of everything that they could see, everything that was going on, in the life of Israel, that there remained a remnant. It's seen in in the exile even. The great promise that in spite of all of the nation being put into exile, a few people would be brought back. Paul picks up on this idea, this promise of a remnant, and he sort of plays it forward. In verses 5 and 6, he notes that this remnant would be a remnant by grace. What guarantees that they actually would be brought back is not that there would be good and decent people who would believe. Instead, Paul seizes on the idea that he's been developing all along that grace would actually reserve, set apart a certain number of people that would respond. That God would choose His people in spite of everything that that remains. And then in verse 7, Paul reminds us of the theme that he sort of picked up early on that not all of Israel are of Israel. Now, why would Paul say that? Why does he have this um, hope is the best description? Or actually, even better, a conviction that this would be the case. Well, he gives us four good reasons in the first few verses of this chapter. The first answer is really uh, found in verse 1, and that it is Paul himself. He says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul just notes his own personal history, a major missionary to the early church, and what he notes is that he was a Jew by birth. How can God give up on anyone, if you know Paul's story, when he actually didn't give up on Paul himself? That's a powerful argument. Then Paul ups his game in verse 2 with the election argument. Paul's point is simply this, that God has chosen them. That they're part of the ones that he's set aside, that he's reserved, belonging to himself. And then he saves the best, as I would say for last, in verses 2 through 4, and that is Elijah. Why does Paul sort of allude to him or talk about Elijah? If you know anything from the story, you know this. Elijah was a great prophet in the Old Testament. He had had incredible victories. And one of the best was simply this. Um, In his own ministry, he had brought down fire publicly before everyone that consumed uh, Baal, the idols, and all of their worshipers. If that were not enough, the long drought that they had experienced ended because of Elijah. You would think that coming out of that, Elijah would be set for life. And what I mean by that, this would be a guy that would never experience any doubts or never question anything about what God had done or who he was or anything like that. But as the story goes, Elijah, coming out of that incredible victory, he spirals into what we could describe as nothing less than depression. He looks around 
And through his distorted lens, he thinks, he actually tells God that he's the only one left out of all Israel. And if that were not enough, he basically asked God to kill him because of that. Why would Paul use this story? Why would he sort of use this as really uh, the greatest reason that he can think of why this remnant would remain? Because Paul looks around him and all that he sees is hostility. All that he experiences is rejection. This, as we've noted last week, is deeply personal to Paul. Actually, this always should be personal. It always should be this deeply emotional for God's people. What God shows Elijah is that he set apart reserve for himself 7,000 that had not been the need. What Paul is noting is that not everything is always as it appears to be. Elijah can't see. The great prophet can't see. And neither can God's apostle. The great apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, no one can predict what God is up to and neither can they. According to the Center for Disease Control, approximately 10 people die every year from unintentional drowning. It ranks fifth. Uh, and unintentional injuries in the United States. Uh, but there are all kind of misconceptions built around the idea of drowning. Most people, and the movies that you'll see, this is certainly the truth, if someone's drowning, uh, they splash and they yell for help and they uh, are reaching out. Um, it seems logical to us. I mean, wouldn't you, if you were drowning, do all of those things? Uh, the problem is that drowning is far from obvious. And what they know is that drowning has some characteristics about it uh, that play out in reality, not in the way that we see it perceived. Uh, most drowning people, the vast majority of them, in fact, it's rare that a drowning person calls for help. Uh, that's because you're designed, we're designed to breathe first, call second. Um, and if we can't breathe, there's going to be no calling. A drowning person can't stay above water long enough to actually... Exhale, inhale, and call for help. They also can't wave for help in spite of what we're told. Uh, they're forced by the very situation they find themselves in to extend their arms to push down on the water. Uh, they certainly aren't interested in calling out to anyone. They also can't move toward help at all. Uh, they can't reach out for a piece of rescue equipment if somebody is truly drowning. Unless a trained lifeguard is present, they will struggle on the surface for 20 to 60 seconds before sinking. The Coast Guard goes to great lengths to emphasize that the drowning response is triggered automatically by things that are built in within us that can't be sort of negated by what we see and what we know. It's involuntary. It's unlearned. And the real tragedy is that it's unavoidable. You know, we look at this story and we think about God's people and we think uh, all kinds of things about it. And yet what this story presses on us, especially this morning, if you're a Christian, who are the people that you've written off? Uh, who are the people that you sort of despaired of that you think uh, really are beyond the pale? This story moves us to something that really is pretty incredible, this chapter. It moves us to hope even. It is the opposite of gloom uh, and disregard. God's plan 
according to Paul. His power, even, uh, and His grace are more than enough for the task at hand. It also forces us to ask, how do you respond uh, to the Jewish people? We have, the church has, a sad and broken history. It's not hard to find, difficult to find, um, especially in Christian literature, that uh, this idea that Israel somehow is disbarred from being a part of God's people, uh, that's the furthest sort of reality of what Paul is talking about here. It's not just um, Paul is sort of giving us uh, the outline, this idea of a remnant, this idea of preservation, but he also shows us the path here. And he does it in, in a very interesting way. He starts beginning to talk about a tree, specifically an olive tree. Now, I will tell you this, just as sort of a precursor here. He doesn't talk about two trees. He only talks about one. And it's very important. Grace is compared to the root. Um, the gospel is the root. And the branches are sort of grafted in. It was a common practice in the ancient Near East to take wild olive branches that were thriving, that were growing, and they would graft them into cultivated trees. The reason is it made the original root much more vigorous, much more impervious to disease, and it also uh, caused them to produce actually more fruit. This is a warning, as Paul unrolls this, against sort of presumption, against arrogance. His point is, if natural branches can be broken off, then no one should think of the Jews as left deserving. The only thing that actually keeps anyone attached to this root, this root of grace, is faith itself. The challenge here that Paul unrolls is a large one, at least in our culture, and I'll unroll it this way. Uh, they're not different ways of having a relationship with God. The way he describes it, there is only being engrafted into this one root. There's only one tree, so to speak. What Paul is not advocating, what he's actually arguing against, is that Israel will have their way, and the Gentiles and Christians will have theirs. Instead, he says that if there is any hope, uh, any hope in this world or in the life to come, that there must be this engrafting into the same root. There's a single family built around this Messiah, Jesus. There's no way back that doesn't involve faith in Jesus as the Messiah. So what is Paul advocating here? In verses 11 and 12, it is really quite phenomenal the way he develops this. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather... Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Paul goes so far as to say this. Israel's rejection has actually brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And it is amazing the way he actually sort of presses this forward. If this had not had happened, the conclusion would simply have been this, that this gospel would just be something that was for ethnic Israel only. The repeated cycle that you find throughout the New Testament looks something like this. The gospel is first taken and preached to the synagogue. And what they experience is hostility and rejection. The preachers turn to the town around them, wherever they happen to be, and the gospel is embraced. Paul says the reason for this is that Israel would be made jealous 
I'm going to expand on that more in just a second. But it's one of the goals of Paul's ministry. Jews will see that the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament promises, were now being fulfilled among the Gentiles, and they would hunger for that. They would want that. Their stumbling, as one writer said, was in order to bring the Gentiles flooding into this gospel. Science writer shares an interesting fact about plants, especially about how tiny seeds start to put down roots, the most essential thing for a plant's survival. She writes this, No risk is more terrifying than that taken by the first root. A lucky root will eventually find water. But its first job is actually to be an anchor. Once the root is extended, the plant will never again enjoy any hope of relocating to a place less cold, less dry, and less dangerous. It will face frost, drought, greedy jaws without any possibility of flight. She says this first root is really a gigantic gamble. But if it's done properly, if it's done in the right place, it can extend 12, 30, 40 feet down. And the results are absolutely undeniably powerful. It can swell bedrock. It can crack rocks. It can drink millions of gallons of water a day. The plant becomes all but destructible, indestructible because of this root. She says this science tells us you can tear apart everything above ground, everything, and most plants will grow back rebelliously from just one intact root. I know this in my yard in a painful way. Um, I can destroy whatever I see and the thing continues to grow back. It'll grow back not just once, but twice. I've yet to see one. I can kill it. Um, there is horrible anti-Semitism that is at work not only in our world but hidden underneath Christian language. There is this idea, a refusal to sort of share the gospel with Jewish people, believing um, that God sort of has a different agenda in mind. This idea of one tree strikes at the very heart of that sort of notion. But even more so and even more telling is this idea that the gospel that should produce this kind of envy, jealousy in those around you. If, there's, if you're a Christian this morning, the question is, is there anything in your life um, that could possibly promote jealousy? Is there anything that would possibly someone would long to have in the way that you handle stress, in the way you handle disaster, hard things, in the way that they come into your life and you sort of negotiate those Waters, is there anything that would make anyone envious? I'm going to be honest. I've been around Christians that actually make me not want to be one by what I see in their life. If you're a non-Christian, you know that expression well. It's not just the path that Paul lays out. It's also the progress. Um, and it's undeniable that we see here in this passage. Uh, some have unrolled this in various ways and I'm going to enroll it in probably a completely different way. In verse 25 it begins, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Some have actually read this as envisioning a, uh, a future, a future stage in God's work and development among Israel. 
I will tell you, it doesn't seem to fit with what Paul is saying here in this passage at all. Why would I say that? Paul seems to envision that his own ministry uh, is actually a jealousy-provoking one. That the very activity that he's actually pursuing in and among the Gentiles is bringing in or about to bring in the fullness of the Israel. Those during his ministry believed they were not added to the remnant, but instead they were the full number that Paul talks about. The full number that would actually find its development during Christ's first and second coming. I will tell you also what it's not. I don't think it's a future sort of reality. I also don't think it has anything to do with national Israel. What do I mean by that? Paul never speaks of Israel as a nation. He's contrasting ethnic Gentiles and ethnic Jews. He's not sort of blending the two into some kind of amorphous activity that you can't sort of distinguish. Just as an aside, what happened to Israel in 1948 has no bearing, not only on this passage, but anything actually in the New Testament. What am I getting at is this. Christianity is the unreligion, as one writer said. It turns every other religion on its head. Ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. Romans told us that we should be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciences. Hinduism tells us that we're to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us uh, that we're to actually be submissive, subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us that we're just to ignore our doubts, that that's how we find peace. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failures. Christianity is deeply the unreligion. It's the only faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing but our need. So what is Paul driving at here when he says all Israel will be saved? What Paul is saying is possible, probable, that it will happen for the Jews to be included in the same way that the Gentiles come to faith. What does he mean when he says all Israel will be saved? Some have said, well, it's only the elect remnant. Well, that's true, but it's also meaningless to make that sort of statement. It's a direct contrast. It's the same side of the same coin, or opposite sides of the same coin. You have full Gentiles on one side, full Israel on the other. It is not each and every Jew without exception. It doesn't mean that for Gentiles either, but as a whole. If we look at the Gospel, actually, or the Revelation, the book that John wrote, he says this, It will be as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky, numbers that can't be numbered. The best way I can phrase this, the majority as opposed to the minority who don't believe. What Paul is giving us here is not a future large-scale revival, but instead a steady flowing growth that is seen actually not only throughout history, but even seen today. Uh, in his book, Bono, uh, In Conversion, In Conversation, the lead singer of the group U2 talks about specifically his faith. He writes this, It is a mind-blowing concept that God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But one thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. 
He writes this, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for eye, tooth for tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, comes along the idea that grace ended all. As you reap, so you sow stuff. Grace defies logic and reason. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff, he writes. It doesn't excuse my mistakes. And then he writes this, but I'm holding out for grace. What Paul is saying here is that he's holding out for grace. Do you? Uh, If you're a Christian this morning, do you allow room for that reality, not only in your own life, but in the relationships around you? Do you allow room, actually, for God to work? Or do you think it's already been decided, it's already been done? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy that Paul unrolls for us, that the story has not been told, is not finished. Forgive us for the times when we act as if it has when we wring our hands in despair, when we throw up our hands in surrender or discouragement, when we uh, throw people off as if they have been completely disregarded by you. We pray that you would change us this morning. For all of us, as we come to this place, need to be changed. We look around us, and we don't see and we don't know, but you do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.